Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Franklin. If you work at a startup or a company with a startup attitude, this podcast is for you. Each week, we talk to an expert guest about financial success and lessons learned on the journey to long-term security. Tim Cochis is one of the founders of Modern Day Financial Planning. He has served executives while leading practices at Bank of America and at Deloitte. As one of the pioneers of the CFP Board of Standards, which he chaired in 1995, he helped design the new profession standards as it moved away from the slick stockbroker stereotype toward a vital and trustworthy professional service, helping so many people live their best lives. He's also the founder of Coaches Fits, a San Francisco wealth management firm. In 2008, the firm merged with Quintile Wealth Management, creating Asperient. This fulfilled Tim's goal of creating, building, and eventually exiting a firm that remains independent today. He has also served on the board of trustees for Charles Schwab Mutual Funds and ETF Offerings and the board of directors at the Financial Planning Standards Board, serving as its chair in 2005. I met Tim in the 90s when I was a newly minted CPA with five years of tax experience at Deloitte and Ernst & Young. I was fortunate to train with Tim and his partners at a fee-only, comprehensive financial planning firm before starting my own in 1999. Tim is uniquely qualified to share his insight on the podcast because of his own entrepreneurial journey and his many decades of working with executives who have experienced a liquidity event. Tim, it's so nice to talk to you again. Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. Thank you very much, Joyce. Great to be here. Let's start with the company you co-founded, Coaches Fits. What did your firm do and how was it different from most of the money management firms at that time? Well, we were a comprehensive financial planning firm. We styled ourselves as a wealth management firm because in addition to doing planning, we also managed client portfolios. And in fact, we very early on made that a requirement that we would manage their portfolio in addition to providing planning services and vice versa. We would not just manage money without also providing planning services. And most of our clients were either entrepreneurs themselves, business owners, people who had created businesses, or were executives of corporations. And so we acquired a lot of skill in working with people in their business capacity and helping them optimize uh, the source of their wealth, not just the wealth that was created by it. It sounds like you led with the financial planning service. That was the real value added that you were bringing. Well, that was what was different from many other firms that, quote, managed money, is that we also did a comprehensive analysis of and made recommendations about and assisted with the implementation of every aspect of their financial affairs, taxes, investments, obviously, uh, insurance, estate planning, uh, retirement benefits. There was nothing that was off limits. And how did you spread the word about comprehensive financial planning back in the early days of your firm? 
Well, we probably benefited from the fact that I was uh, very heavily engaged in industry activities. I was part of the CFP board from its very uh, initiation in 1985. I subsequently became involved with the Foundation for Financial Planning and then subsequent to that with the uh, Financial Planning Standards Board. So I became associated in the public's mind with the development of financial planning as a distinct professional activity uh, based on the credential certified financial planner. So I think there was a general awareness in um, sort of the public eye about this. And like other firms, we developed most of our business through word of mouth. There was no direct advertising that would have been very expensive and very difficult to target. We would very often uh, have an opportunity to pitch a particular company, a corporation, to provide services to their senior executive team as a corporate perquisite. And from that sales effort, you could get many, sometimes tens or dozens of clients from that corporation who, by having engaged us to do this, were giving us their stamp of approval. So the marketing of our business was actually a lot easier than um, it might appear. As an advisor, I'm sure you know founders generally have the majority of their net worth tied up in their company, which might be fine for someone in their 20s just starting out in their career, but it's not great for someone in their 50s or 60s since their human capital runway is much shorter. When is a good time for a founder to make plans for their eventual exit? I'm going to give you an answer you're probably anticipating, and that is that it's never too early to begin to think about an eventual exit from both the ownership of a business and also the management, the control of a business. Those are two separate things. And again, it's never too early to start thinking about that. But once you have thought about that and have identified a particular target time frame, then becoming uh, quite explicit about what the plan is and making that plan public, I would say should happen about five years before it is to be finally implemented. And I want to emphasize the notion of its being a public plan because your colleagues, your clients, or customers, depending on almost any kind of business, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a professional services business, but customers, clients, suppliers, and staff want to know where they fit in that time frame. Another benefit of making it public is it makes it very, very difficult to change the plan uh, because now other people have a stake in that plan going forward and it holds the, um, the founder, CEO, primary owner accountable. I do a lot of consulting in this arena and I've heard from many founder CEOs that, well, I have a plan. And I said, well, is it written down anywhere? And said, no, it's in my head. I said, does anyone know about this plan? They said, no. And I said, well, then you don't have a plan. You don't have a plan until somehow you can be held accountable for accomplishing it. Ah, it's kind of like telling people you're on a diet. <laughs> right. Yes, when you go out to lunch with them and they, or, they order a second dessert, you say, wait a minute, whatever happened to that diet? Exactly. I never tell people I'm on a diet. So what tools or resources should a founder use when creating an exit strategy? 
I think it's often very helpful to have the benefit of uh, third-party expertise. Like any type of important undertaking, it is very helpful to have the benefit of people who are able to see both what other uh, firms and individuals have done, have a sense of what best practices are, but also to provide an element of objectivity. It's really, really difficult to be objective about your own uh, affairs in the wealth management industry or profession. That is one of the key values that practitioners bring to their clients is that they bring an objectivity about uh, decisions about one's finances. And it's really, really difficult, no matter how smart a client may be, for them to be truly dispassionate about it. As I mentioned earlier, you are the co-founder of Coaches Fits along with Linda Fitz, and you merged with Quintile Wealth Management in 2008, creating Aspirient. At the time of the merger, the combined firm advised on more than $5 billion in assets for just under 400 clients, and you became the chairman and CEO. Asperient was one of the three biggest independent registered investment advisors in the country at that time. When did you realize the right path for your exit would be a merger? Well, this is one of those questions where I think I'm going to uh, try to clarify a misconception, which is really a quite common misconception, and, and that is that the merger in 2008 between Coaches Fitz and Quintile was incidental to an existing plan to exit from the CEO role. That was something that I had articulated and announced to clients and to uh, my uh, colleagues at Coaches Fits several years before that merger took place. So we were in the process of making progress along uh, the lines of that plan when the merger opportunity occurred, came uh, came to uh, our attention. It was very attractive uh, merger opportunity. We pursued it and as a coincidence, the managing partner of the firm we merged with, Quintile, uh, Rob Francis, was a very good candidate, in my view, to be the next CEO of the merged firm. So part of our merger negotiations were that I would stay on as the CEO of the merged firm for two years, which would be right about the time that I was otherwise planning to give up the CEO role, and then Rob would take over as the successor uh, CEO. If we hadn't done the merger, I probably, once I got to know Rob, I probably would have tried to recruit him away from Quintile, bring him into Coaches Fits to be the successor CEO. So those two things dovetailed, but they weren't a cause and effect situation. They were coincidental. You gave equity to a handful of others fairly soon after you started your firm. Do you recommend that as a recruiting tool? Well, let me step back and uh, take your question in two parts. One, in the very early stages, the equity in the firm was effectively given away. We expected people to make a small capital contribution to the firm, and we reapportioned some of what they would have been paid in salary from them to Linda and to me. So there was a little bit of a financial transaction there, but in those days, transition of equity within RIA firms was a really novel uh, proposition and the firm probably wasn't worth very much. And so we didn't try to get serious about valuation and having people pay real money. 
But that eventually changed because we realized that the value of the firm was, in fact, significant and that it wasn't uh, fair to founders like Linda and me to not be compensated for the value that we had um, founded. And it wasn't appropriate to the people who are acquiring interest in the firm not to have to pay for the valuable asset that they would expect to continue to grow. So conceptually, we went from, quote, giving it away almost to valuing the firm and having people pay under very favorable terms a fair market value with a slight discount. The discount was 15% uh, from what we perceived the fair market value of the firm to be. And the discount was to make it reasonably convenient for them. And and there were installment arrangements and there was financing arranged by third-party financing uh, sources, banks. So the people who became owners of the firm, even very early, on were people who were already there, had already demonstrated their value to the firm, and they were either initially awarded equity or permitted to buy it as a demonstration of uh, their contribution to the firm and the expectation that they would help the firm grow even more valuable over time. So it wasn't recruiting, it was in a sense a reward for uh, past and expected future contributions. Is there anything you would have done differently regarding sharing equity? Well, uh, I think I probably, in fairness to the people who were sort of in the second wave of ownership, I think I would have tried to come up with some kind of valuation methodology and had the very first wave of owners actually pay not a token, but rather something that represented the value at the time. Uh, Again, that was not because we didn't value those people at all or that we regretted not making more money, quote, from them. But in fairness to those who came after them, I think I would have done that differently. But one of the things that I uh, have been very uh, proud of and I encourage other firms to do is to begin the equity distribution process early. It can begin uh, long before the transition of control. And that's one of the things that uh, is a hang-up for many founder CEOs is that they associate ownership with control as an identity. And it doesn't have to be. Uh, You can transition ownership without simultaneously or equivalently transitioning control. And once that light bulb goes on, then people say, oh, I get it. I can begin to transition ownership in the firm to give people uh, an important stake, permit them to uh, begin to accumulate other wealth uh, from distributions of net earnings so someday they can afford to buy even more. So getting that first seed of ownership planted early is a really important aspect of a successful transition. For a founder or a co-founder team who owns 100% of a company, what general advice do you have about the logistics to bring on non-founder owners? In private professional services organizations like the ones that I have been involved in and that I mostly consult with, it is a a case of permitting people to actually uh, purchase 
interests in the firm from the existing owner group, uh, whether it's an individual or a small group. And again, uh, the timing on this is really crucial. Starting early is really important. And then one of the really key aspects of the logistics is getting the valuation right. People have to agree on both sides of the transaction that the price is fair. And if you're in a public company, well, then you don't have to have a debate about that. The value of the public shares is uh, known on a daily basis. But in any kind of private proposition where you don't have a uh, publicly available price, then you have to arrive at some valuation based on a legitimate professional appraisal of some kind that People on both sides of the transaction can say, yeah, that's probably right. How should founders do their due diligence on future partners and how should they protect themselves if things were not to work out? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why the process of becoming uh, owner of a firm should be a slow process. Uh, By that, I mean from the first day of someone's employment to the date on which they can become an owner, particularly in a very closely held type of business, is probably a span of at least a couple of years, maybe longer maybe even five. Uh, In some cases, much longer than that, although I'm not a big fan of it striking out to eight or 10 years. So people have an opportunity to really evaluate people in place. They can see how they perform. They can see what their technical skills are. They can see how they relate to the clients or customers of the firm. Uh, You can see how they relate to uh, their fellow staff members. So that ability to observe people on, on the job is a really crucial aspect of being confident about inviting people to become owners of the firm and how you protect yourself at the other end of things if that turns out not to be right. Well, every good governance system should have some feature which permits under extreme circumstances for there to be an ouster of uh, someone who just no longer fits. And the criteria that would identify that should be as specific as possible. The process around it should involve uh, careful opportunities for all sides to be heard. Uh, There should be a careful process that involves an agreement by a majority of the ownership, but maybe a very substantial majority of the ownership group. But there has to be some way to say goodbye to someone who just isn't fitting. If the front-end process is well done, the back-end process should never be necessary. One of your books is called Managing Concentrated Stock Wealth. As a business owner, when did you become concerned that your wealth was concentrated in your own company? And what advice do you have to others in this situation? Given the fact that I've written extensively on managing concentrated wealth, both in public and private contexts, this might be a strange admission, but I frankly never worried about that. Because I had begun a process of distributing ownership in the uh, original Coaches Fits very early on, uh, at the time of the merger, I think I owned about 27% and maybe some change 
of the of the original coaches fits firm by the time we came to the merger in 2008 by transferring assets to other people i had already been able to accumulate some personal wealth outside of the firm and i'm fortunate to be married to a woman who has her own professional and business uh, opportunities so we and we have no children and consequently no grandchildren children. And so whatever we were able to accumulate, we tended to give away anyway. We have been, uh, without wanting to be self-congratulatory about this, we've been very generous to a variety of charities over many years. And so what work that I did for myself to determine how much wealth we would need to be able to live very comfortably for a very long time. I plan to live to be 100. Whatever wasn't necessary to fund that comfortable lifestyle for a long time was given away. We gave it to charity or to family and friends. You decided to keep your firm independent. Why was that important to you? Well, uh, and to this day, happily, the Asperian firm has as one of its main uh, objectives and uh, values is to remain uh, permanently independent. And the reason why that was and remains important is that that best aligns the interest of the firm with the interest of its clients. If there is third-party ownership of a firm, there is either explicit or implicit an agenda by uh, a supplier of capital that their interests must be taken into account either by preferred dividends or share of the profits or uh, control over the business operations at some level. And whatever of that you have uh, is not necessarily in the interest of the clients. And so to make sure that the clients are very well served, being independent of any of that third party influence was and remains important. There's a big wave of independent wealth management firms being acquired by large firms. Do you know where the cash is coming from to fund the purchases? And are you privy to the economics of these deals? Yes, I am privy to the economics of some of them. I've been involved in working with some of them. Uh, Obviously, I'm not in a position to go into any detail about that, but the financing for these things is coming from a couple of sources. It's coming uh, from third-party bank financing or from VC financing, private equity financing. In some rare cases, it is being internally generated. In some cases, there have been redemptions. In, in, in my case, for example, some of the shares of Asperian that I had owned, my final sale was last December. So I've been making a very long financial exit uh, from Asperian over the past uh, 13 or so years. And uh, some of those shares were redeemed by the firm, which means that the firm, uh, through its own earnings, will be, uh, has made or will be making remaining installment payments. So if you have a firm that's big enough to generate enough earnings to be able to uh, redeem its own equity, then you can have financing that is internally generated. But there aren't terribly many firms that have the uh, ability to do that. 
Let's look at my four phases of startup life graphic, which listeners can find in the show notes or on jlfwealth.com. On the graphic, phase one is laying the foundation, but I want to talk to you about phase two. This is the pre-transition phase that happens less than 24 months before the liquidity event. Were there any surprises that happened just before your merger? The merger was about achieving an economic advantage for the firm, making it bigger, stronger. It wasn't about an exit. But in the 24 months up to that point, we had already begun the process of developing the plan for my transition from the CEO role, which we had launched about three years before that. And for the merger itself, the merger discussions began about a year, uh, actually not quite a year, about uh, 10 months before the actual uh, closing date of the merger. And during that 10-month period, there was a lot of really intense investigation, uh, negotiation. We hired uh, attorneys. We hired an investment bank to help us with uh, the kinds of details that we frankly didn't know anywhere near enough about in order to have this thing be be pulled off. So the uh, burden of the preparation for the merger was intense and involved a lot of uh, long hours and some difficult, tense negotiations. But Everyone involved had their eyes set on an eventual goal of making the merger happen. We uh, engaged in a uh, uh, an agreement that we would merge and that we selected January 1st, 2008 as the merger date, knowing that we had a long list of issues still to be addressed, still to be resolved, and some of them as you might imagine, were among the most contentious issues, like what the name of the firm that the merger would produce would be. But everyone had the same ultimate goal. We are going to make this work. We know that we're going to have to engage in compromises. We know we're going to have to give up some things we'd really like to have, but we're going to make this happen. So that was leading up to that transition. But at that point, the financial consequences of it involved no cash, for example, to me, from our merger partner. Our merger partner had a valuation, Coaches Fitz had a valuation, and we put those two valuations together with the help of our investment bank and came up with the value for the firm as a whole. But there was a cash transaction to me on December 31st of 2007 because Coaches Fitz invited seven new people to be owners of the firm, and I volunteered some of my existing ownership to be sold to them. And so we did. Let's talk about the liquidity event phase. You have worked for decades as an advisor to people going through liquidity events. How have you advised people who are about to get a big chunk of cash? And what did you tell them after the liquidity event? Well, uh, first of all, they need to think about it in advance. They need to have some sense of how large it's going to be and what role that is going to have in their 
long-term comprehensive financial plan. But recognizing that uh, human nature being what it is, people sometimes want to take that large cash infusion and do something special with it, maybe a special indulgence, like buying a new house, maybe buying a really fancy car, buying that boat that they've always wanted to have. So there are lots of ways that people can be a little self-indulgent with that. And first of all, that's normal and probably a good thing because it makes people then more willing to take a mature and broadly diversified approach to the rest of that money. In some cases, it's also an opportunity for being generous to family, friends, and to charity. So again, having a sense in advance how much is is it going to be? How does it fit into the overall long-term financial plan? And then, oh, by the way, buy yourself a toy so that you feel like you've been rewarded. What did you buy after your liquidity event? Well, I guess you might say that in anticipation of this, I had already purchased a second residence. I purchased a second residence in 2005, long before the merger took place. Again, I was able over the span of having already uh, distributed some of the ownership stake and having a very successful firm that generated uh, high profits. And I received my share of those profits. I was able to accumulate not insubstantial uh, financial assets. And one of the things I did with some of that was to uh, buy a second residence. And in 2007, again, without knowing that the merger was actually going to take place, I bought a couple of new uh, automobiles. And by the way, I still have them. So they're now 14 or 15 years old. But that had really had nothing to do with the, uh, the merger. What did happen, and again, this sounds self-congratulatory, is I took some of the money that came as a result of that December 31st, 2007 transaction and gave it to charity, a pretty large amount. So what were you doing after the liquidity event? What were your goals heading into phase three? I was like 62 or 63, and I was definitely not ready to retire in, in any conventional sense. But I believed very strongly that no one should be CEO for life. I think that's a very dangerous proposition. And uh, so I committed myself to not be CEO after about age 64 or 65, but I certainly wasn't intending to retire. I wanted to do something, uh, certainly within the industry, and I continue to do that. I'm very active in various industry organizations. I consult to the industry. I'm involved in training programs. I'm mentoring people within uh, the profession in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So I'm continue to be very active in the profession. And I wanted to be very active in the firm for as long as that made sense. Uh, after uh, I stepped away from being the CEO, I took a brief sabbatical, uh, six months, where I went incommunicado. I had been the boss for decades. And it takes a little getting used to not to be the boss any longer. And I think it would have been helpful also to Rob to have a whole year's worth of my being uh, not on the scene to uh, better establish himself. He did a fine job with doing that, but I think it might have been even better had he had a whole year to work with, with my not being around. 
But then I came back and did some specialized activities and served as the board chair for a while. And eventually, uh, it was time just for me to um, uh, leave entirely. That happened in 2012. So altogether, approximately four plus years had elapsed from the time of the merger to the time that I finally was no longer an employee of the firm. As a planner, I'm sure you thought through so many details of what life was going to be like after exiting from the firm that you grew, built, and had a successful exit from. What was most surprising to you from a personal perspective? Well, what surprised me was in that six-month time frame that in the first couple of months, the withdrawal from uh, being uh, involved intensely on a day-to-day basis with the firm was a bit of a surprise. But then the rest of your life takes over, and I've always had a lot of interest in travel and civic involvement. I'm involved in several uh, nonprofit boards. And so the rest of your life takes over and you become very busy with the rest of your life. And then in my case, uh, as we got into the fifth and sixth month of that sabbatical, I started to think, oh my God, I have to go back. And I'm going back to an entirely different role. And what is that going to be like? And so, frankly, the end of the sabbatical got to be a little scary. It's like, what is this going to be like? And so, again, I think it would have been good had I made that sabbatical a year as opposed to only six months. But to, I think, more, em- more emphatically about what surprised me about no longer being in the same position was the change in my relationship with clients. I had always devoted myself first and foremost to the welfare of clients. And I became friends with many of them. And when I was no longer in the same role, I no longer had the ultimate responsibility for their planning welfare and for the success of their investment portfolios. It was a real surprising change. I didn't think I would miss that as much as I did. And I heard from a number of clients that they missed it as well. That was very kind of them to say that, that they really appreciated the sort of personal involvement that I had in the success of their lives. And they missed it too. Uh, But that was a real surprise to me how much I missed it. Even more than missing the collegial relationship with uh, members of the staff, uh, I miss that, of course, but it's the clients. The, the change in the relationship with clients was the most surprising aspect. The landscape of wealth management has changed over the decades. What's your advice to someone starting their own firm? Well, uh, my advice is make sure that you have loyal clientele. That is the most important ingredient to having success in uh, launching your own firm. All the other logistical stuff you can get by linking up with one of the major custodians, uh, Schwab, TD, uh, Fidelity, uh, Pershing, all of these firms are 
eager to help you deal with all the logistics that you need to make your firm work. And there's now many suites of a very effective software that you're going to want to use, not only to run your business, but to do the work that you're doing for your clients. So that really isn't much of a problem. The uh, important features beyond having loyal clientele are having loyal colleagues to work with. You will find it being almost impossible to have an enjoyable professional life if you try to be a one-man or a one-woman show. You are going to need colleagues to work with you. Not only does this make your the burden of serving clients easier, it also makes it uh, makes your service offering, your value proposition more valuable to uh, your prospects because they see that it's more than just you, that there is backup, there is breath, there is depth. So that is... Uh, another important ingredient. But I do encourage people to have the entrepreneurial willingness to launch their own businesses. My sense of the future of this profession, or if you wish, this industry, is that there will continue to be a considerable consolidation, but simultaneous with that will be the emergence of new niche-oriented, geographically well-positioned small firms that will come into existence. And I see that being a permanent ongoing proposition, the emergence of new small firms on one end and the consolidation of larger mature firms at the other end. And that, it seems to me, can continue indefinitely into the future. At my firm, I've transitioned some clients to my dedicated colleague, Taryn. I was afraid that clients would say, no, we only want to work with you, Joyce. But they've been very receptive. And so that's an example of a successful transition plan. I think that it worked because everyone on our team who meets with clients has a high level of knowledge and experience. Well, what you've put your finger on are two aspects of the client relationship. One, they develop a great deal of trust and confidence in you. And on one level, they're sorry to see you transitioning uh, into a new role for yourself and away from them. But the savvy clients and certainly the savvy prospects want to know what the continuity plan is because what they have bargained for is a more or less permanent relationship and Again, if they're savvy, they know you're not going to live forever. You're not going to want to be doing this work forever. So what happens after you? And if you don't have a good answer to that question, then your business will wither. And it'll wither because you won't be able to attract new clients. And the existing clients will uh, be less enthusiastic about uh, continuing to do business with you. I'm reading your book, Success and Succession, for the second time. Six years later, there are different parts that resonate so clearly now where they didn't before. So thank you for writing that. Yeah, well, I should mention that I had two co-authors. 
uh, Jay Hummel and uh, Eric Heyman were, in fact, the genesis of that book. They made a presentation at a um, uh, conference somewhere. Some One of them said, I think we should write a book about this sometime. And so after their presentation, I came up to them. They knew who I was, but I had not met either of them before. And I said, you know, I think this is a great idea for writing this book. Have you ever written a book? And they said, no. And I said, do you know how to go about it? No. Uh, do you have a publisher? <laughs> no. And I said, well, I've written and I have a publisher. And how about if we write it together? So that's how it happened. Thank you, Tim, for your candid and thorough answers. So many people are fortunate to have your help and guidance. Is there anything else that you want to mention or share with the podcast audience? No, thank you very much, Joyce. It's been really a pleasure to uh, speak with you extensively about these things. I really appreciate the questions and the opportunity it's given me to share some of my uh, insights gained from decades, as you say, decades of experience, and that I'm still in a position to share with uh, my consulting clients and with the people that I mentor uh, within our profession. So uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Where can people find you online? Well, I have a website, www.coachesglobal.com, and I'm on LinkedIn, and by all means, please feel free to contact me, and I am always eager to uh, make uh, new friends. Thanks for listening to Startup Wealth. Today's show was produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Original theme music by Philip Reynolds-Price. To learn more about J.L. Franklin Wealth Planning and how we can help you protect your wealth, mitigate taxes, care for your family, and pursue your dreams, visit jlfwealth.com. We are a growing firm. If you are an experienced advisor who subscribes to our approach and wants to grow with us, please get in touch. If you like the show and want more, please rate and review Startup Wealth in your favorite podcast app. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as specific investment, legal, tax, or financial planning advice. Please consult with your professional advisor before taking any action based on the content discussed.